welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the Thank best of so the best much. to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. Her name is uh, Priyanka Jane, uh, the co-founder and CEO at Evi. Priyanka, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I'm very excited to be here. And that's that's definitely my my pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's get to know more about uh, about yourself and uh, what has been the story behind uh, Evi. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can start with a little bit on me as a person and then dive into how that leads to Evie. But my background's actually in building data-centric products. And I actually spent the past four or five years here in New York um, helping build a company called Pymetrics, where we were building algorithms that could make the hiring process more fair and efficient by using new types of data. And we did so much interesting work on thinking about what it means to build a fair and ethical and predictive algorithm when you have a really biased training set, right? Because it turns out that today's workforce, if you train an algorithm on them, is not necessarily going to be the most fair algorithm for someone who looks like me. Um, and we did a lot of really cool work on pre-testing algorithms, auditing them so that we could ensure that they actually were performing the way that we wanted them to so that we could build the workforce that we wanted to see in the future. Um, and we did a lot of also interesting work on transparent algorithms. So how can you actually understand why or how an algorithm is making a decision. And I say all of this because it turns out there's actually a lot of overlap in HR tech and women's health, which who thought, but you have a lot of similar challenges in healthcare, right? Of having really biased training sets. Turns out that most of the fields that we defined in EARs were defined based on middle-aged, mid-sized white men. Um, and a lot of similar challenges as you start to think about applying machine learning and data science to so much of this healthcare data. And really over the past two years, um, I think everyone was thinking more about healthcare given the state of the world. Um, and I was dealing with my own kind of mysterious healthcare issues that had been going on for a long time. And I think I honestly just got really frustrated going to doctor after doctor and constantly being told, you know, maybe you should drink more water or maybe you should sleep more. Um, and just the classic things that I think, you know, every woman has her own version of the story. And really, as we started to do some of our own research, we realized that women actually weren't required to be included in clinical research in the U.S. until 1993. And that was kind of like the jaw dropping moment for me where I realized like, my whole life made sense. Like, of course, we never know what's going on with me. We've never actually studied women, right? And back to what I was saying earlier, you know, we really always studied these middle-aged, mid-sized white men and assumed that women were small men and we would just make everything smaller for women. And then it turned out that, you know, that didn't work. And to this day, women are actually diagnosed on average four years later than men across over 700 diseases. Um, and our hypothesis is really that it's because we're not paying attention to the unique biomarkers that the female body is constantly mm -hmm. giving off because we always studied men. And so our interest at Evie is to really discover and leverage those amazing signals that the female body is uniquely giving off so that we can actually do a much better job predicting risk of disease, diagnosing disease and treating disease as it uniquely manifests in women. Um, and obviously our first focus is on the vaginal microbiome. Love it. And uh, so uh, what would be kind of the vision in, in the long term for, uh, for Evie? What would you envision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things that we want to see differently in the way that women's health is presented today, right? Whether it's in 
what we choose to measure, how do we make sure that we're actually measuring the most important and relevant things, the way that that's contextualized and explained so that it's actually specific to you. And then really thinking about much more precise care, right? I always say precision healthcare today is being designed for middle-aged, mid-sized white men, right? Because all of the data that we're using to decide what precision healthcare looks like was not defined on people who look like myself or my team or most women that we know, right? And so we really strongly believe in a future of healthcare that is based in data that's representative of all of us, right? And I think there's so many pieces of getting there. And, you know, we decided to start with the vaginal microbiome because it turns out that it's actually a perfect example of everything I was just talking about. Not only is it the cause of literally the most common conditions in women, yeast infections, UTIs, bacterial vaginosis, you name it. And those conditions that are, by the way, extremely frustrating and not just physically debilitating, but emotionally, relationally, and really just disrupting to quality of life. And in my opinion, all of our diagnostics and therapeutics are offensively medieval and deserve a lot more attention than they've gotten given the prevalence of these conditions. But it turns out that the vaginal microbiome is also predictive of so many broader female health outcomes. But of course, you know, as someone with a vagina, I never had access to this information on my own body. And no one in the healthcare system was using any of that data to make more informed decisions. And so that's where we decided to start. And we really see that as the beginning of this longer journey where not only are women in much better touch with what's going on in their bodies, how their behaviors affect it having a true understanding of themselves, but also that the healthcare system has access to much more precise understandings of health and disease when the person you're talking about is a woman. Right. And I've, I've um, heard about the gut microbiome uh, also because the audience already knows that I have an autoimmune uh, conditions and I kind of face it all, this, all the issues yeah. that you also uh, talking about going from doctor to doctor and not and treating the consequence and the effects and not the, the cause of my condition. But I, I think that the having the um, this this test and this microbiome test for for the the vagina is is something very innovative, right? So it's it's something quite new, or uh, is this something that you are trying to democratize the access to to the market, or where are we in terms of um, the evolution yeah. of uh, of of that solution? Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, we are very much in kind of the early days, meaning that the generally even using any type of next-gen sequencing on vaginal samples is pretty recent. We're still discovering many of the microbes that are important. We're still mapping the genomes. We're definitely in early days when it comes to broad use of these new technologies. Um, And in the doctor's office, I mean, the standard of care today doesn't even include testing, right? It literally includes looking at looking at a swab under a microscope, smelling it to see if it has an odor, seeing P, I mean, these metrics are so, so rudimentary. And what we're finding is that when you actually look at it, not just with any next-gen sequencing, but actually with something called metagenomic sequencing, which means we're able to actually look at the entire genome, what you start to see are really important strain level differences, right? Very big differences in functional profiles um, and all of these components that could actually really affect the role that that microbe Mm -hmm. could play in the ecosystem. But we never applied this technology to women's health, right? And one of the things we care so deeply about is bringing the best technology to women's health so that we can actually finally get to the bottom of these problems. But actually I would say there's what we do in the doctor's office today, which is microscopy at best to 
Some doctors will order a PCR test, which looks for very specific pathogens, but doesn't do like a broad range test. Then I would say there's the beginnings of the introduction of 16S sequencing, which looks at a specific variable region of the genome. And then there's what Evie's doing, which is looking at the entire genome. But we're definitely in the earliest days of, of what we're doing. <laughs> and I, I can see your, your passion that's... And you are researching a lot on, on that stuff, right? And this is not your background uh, at all, right? So this is something that you are learning uh, from the scratch, right? Absolutely, no. I mean, my background, like I said, is more on the data side, but we are really lucky to be working with an incredible team, not only our advisors on both the medical yeah. and scientific research side, who actually have been leading the research on the vaginal microbiome for decades and seeing patients with this for decades, um, but we actually have an amazing woman on our team who actually has a PhD in the urogenital microbiome and has been extremely wow. fundamentally helpful in putting together our research program as well. But but well well done. You have learned uh, quite fast uh, from the team, and uh, that's always great to listen to an entrepreneur that understands uh, what she's talking about, even being so specific and so difficult to to understand in such so a I short uh, period of time, right? All the credit goes to the people who really are the experts. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and tell us a little bit more about kind of the, the women patient experience uh, with, with a platform. How does that work? When should we look into EVI? What are kind of the symptoms? So what looks like the, the experience? Um, so how does it work in, in other words? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very good question. Um, well, anyone can go to evi.com and engage themselves, right? So it's patient initiated. It's very much direct to consumers serving the woman who's in need. Um, and some people take our test because they've had recurrent symptoms that they can't get to the bottom of, or they've taken treatments that don't work for them, or they're curious about their vaginal health. Turns out vaginal health is incredibly important to overall female health. And yet women have no access to this information on their own bodies. So I would say there's a variety of types of people who come to Evie. Um, but all of them, they order the test online. They can either buy the test one-off, like one time, or you can become an EVI member, which means you take the test every three months. And that way we're able to help you start to understand what's actually working for you. How is your microbiome changing with your behaviors and your treatments um, and actually being able to track it. So you can choose up front. Um, we then ship you your test to your door. It's a simple at-home test. It's like a Q-tip swab of your vagina. I always say it's like easier than putting in a tampon. And then you send that back to our lab where we do metagenomic sequencing to uncover all bacteria and fungi that are present. And then we take that information, we combine it with everything you told us about your symptoms, whether you're in menopause, if you're trying to get pregnant, all of that information. And we actually produce a really amazing, engaging experience for you to learn about your own vaginal health. What did we find? What does it mean for you? What does the research say? Um, and then we actually offer everyone a complimentary call with one of our health coaches who will walk you through your personalized results and prepare you to talk to your partner or talk to your doctor or whatever the right next step might be for you. Love it. Um, super, super clear. And, and today, are you um, up or, or serving in how many states? Or how, how does that work? Because usually it's difficult yeah. to do the rollout, the rollout across all the states, right? 
<laughs> yes, very good question. We are unfortunately only in the U.S. today, but we are in all 50 states in the U.S. Um, and we are hoping to help our international friends soon. We get lots of inbound messages from people all over the world. And as soon as we can get everything together to, to serve people in other countries, we absolutely want to as well. And in terms of business model, uh, from what I understood, it's kind of an on-off if you want just to, to have a test from time to time or a kind of a subscription model where you can have to test every three months, right? Exactly, yeah. And our health coach will actually work with you to help figure out exactly when you should retest. So if you took the test when you have symptoms, maybe you wanna take the second test when you don't have symptoms. Or if you're trying a new treatment plan with your doctor, they can help figure out when in that treatment plan you might wanna take the next test. Um, so we'll kind of work with everyone on an individual level, kind of with their whole care team to make sure that they're getting the most insights out of the actual test itself. And that kind of um, care team is uh, incorporated in the subscription model or is something on top of, uh, of the subscription model? Yeah, the health coaches are actually a part of our, our any of our offerings, both the one-off offering right. as well as the, the membership. Um, and we actually help women work with their doctors as well as part of that. Got it. And uh, of course, the final question about uh, the, all those pieces, which is much more related with, uh, with the ICP. Do you have any particular ICP uh, within the women uh, uh, persona that you would like to serve the most in, in these early stages uh, of the company? Wait, what does ICP stand for? Sorry, ideal customer profile. The same happened to me uh, <laughs> earlier today. I'm not sure why. I'm assuming that, that I, I need to say ideal customer profile. Sorry about that. For the yeah, no, it's such a good question. I mean, I would say they our customers primarily fall into a few buckets. One, like I said earlier, is someone who has suffered recurrently from vaginal symptoms or infections and is really looking for like, okay, can someone actually help me understand what's going on? This is disruptive to my life. Nothing's working for me. Help me out. And just so we're on the same page, over 30% of women every year are suffering from these problems. So it's a huge proportion of women who are suffering. Then there's a second cohort of women, um, which I would say are much more of like the the curious ones, right? The optimizers, the people who really want to understand their health, whether that's because they're thinking about getting pregnant or they're postpartum and trying to figure out what's changing in their bodies after being pregnant. Um, and then I would say there's actually a third subset, which is women in perimenopause or menopause who are suffering with vaginal symptoms for the first time and like really confused about it, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but it turns out that the changes in estrogen actually affect the health of the kind of quote unquote healthy bacteria in the vagina. And as estrogen levels go down, you actually see that those protective levels go down as well. And so women start to experience infections, UTIs, BV, in ways that they might not have before. And so we're actually seeing a large contingency of those women coming to us as well. Got it. So now that we kind of understood your why, the, the story, the vision, and a little bit of the, the business model, the targets, how, how it works, um, I know that you are very passionate about uh, how much to do in terms of uh, improving the standard of care for female conditions. Uh, what are some of your of your thoughts on things that we can do and that needs to be done in order to serve better uh, the women population? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I'm not sure when this is going to air, but actually next week we have a very exciting campaign launching on this exact topic. And I'm excited for everyone to be able to learn more about this. But like I said, women weren't required to be in clinical research until June 10th, 1993, which is when Congress passed the NIH Revitalization Act, which was the first time that women were required Mm -hmm. to be in research. And actually for the 30 years before that, women of quote unquote childbearing age were actively not allowed to be in research in the U.S. So like most of the decades in which the foundation of medicine was created, like women were not part of any of that research, which is crazy to me. And so I think there's so many pieces of getting us out of there, right? It's like, there's so many problems, whether it's like how we should dose adjust medications for women, why women have adverse side effects more often, why we take so much longer to diagnose women, right? And I think all of that kind of comes back to the same buckets as always, right? One is like women's health needs to be funded. <laughs> like to this day, only 4% of the healthcare R&D budget in the US goes towards focusing on women's health. And I think last year there was a study that analyzed federal funding in the US and we do twice as much funding for male prevalent diseases as we do female prevalent ones, right? So HIV, AIDS, prostate cancer, hepatitis, we do much more funding. And then female prevalent diseases like eating disorders, migraines, vaginal infections, et cetera, much, much less funded. So funding is the first one. Two is participation, both from people being in clinical trials, but also of the people who are leading the trials. I think only 30% of NIH funding goes to women who are actually doing the research. And obviously if you have more women doing the research, you end up researching Mm -hmm. problems that affect women. Um, Obviously the venture capital industry plays a huge role in this. Companies like Evie that are trying to close the gap, making sure that companies are able to raise money. And then I would say a fourth piece that we feel really strongly about at Evie is actually educating women themselves, right? There's so many structural problems (laughs) that need to change, but we can't just wait. For, for that to happen. I think a huge part of it is helping women become their own advocates. You know, I always say you are the expert on your own body. Our job is to just give you the tools to talk about it. Um, and so how can we really help her be her best advocate? Understand what does science know? What does science not know? I always say treat women like they're smart, right? Like we don't need to hide everything until we have all the answers. We just need to be transparent. And I think that really investing in scientifically sound education is a huge part of closing the gap as well. This is a a great bridge to one of the topics that I wanted to bring uh, into into the conversation, which is really the importance of the community. And I can feel it because, of course, nowadays, since I was diagnosed with this condition, I have a lot of curiosity of speaking with other people that are going through the same process, what they are doing, what is working, what is not working, uh, what can I learn from them? So I see that's a huge power that the community can deliver to this kind of patients and these communities. Um, Also the the education bit, as you said, uh, and especially because there is so many stuff online uh, that is not reliable. And that confuses us so much that uh, gives you uh, contrarian advice and uh, opposite advice. Uh, it's it's super complex. So uh, uh, an institution, an entity that is able to deliver community and high quality education to the patient adds so much value. 
but we all know that. But then comes the question: How to do it in a in a digital yeah. health uh, context, right? So how are you doing that at Evi? What what is your vision? What are your ideas? I know that uh, you are still applying yeah. all of this, and this is always uh, <laughs> a, a process uh, moving forward, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, I think you can think about it from like the most macro level down yeah. to the individual, right? And I think at an individual level, like I said, for every single woman who goes through the Evie experience, she's offered a personal health coaching call to better understand her own results, how they relate to her own health history, to click through the research and really talk about it. And I think that education at an individual level is so, so important. Then comes kind of like the peer-to-peer you know, members of Evie being able to meet each other, find people who've had similar experiences. How did you talk to your doctor? What worked for you? Um, and we're seeing that really just been, you know, I'm like blown away by the many women who spend their time really educating other women about their experiences and being like true advocates for other women in the ecosystem. So that's been amazing to see that that's starting to happen. And we actually started our own community where we put our members and just to see the way that they support each other and tell each other stories. And, you know, they're getting on video calls together. I mean, it's been just like amazing to see that blossom. And then I would say there's kind of the macro level, which is how can we provide education at scale? And I would say we kind of have two or three key platforms by which we're doing that today. One is our blog called Ask Evie, where people can ask questions. Mm -hmm. And then we actually gather experts, doctors, researchers to provide people with scientifically sound education. And we're actually seeing that those articles are starting to rank on Google. And, you know, it turns out wow. that there isn't a lot of really good, true information about vaginal health on the internet. And so being able to fill that with really great scientifically backed content has been really exciting. Um, and then I would say we translate that into our Instagram as well. And then third platform that's been really exciting to see grow has actually been our TikTok, where we not only do a lot of kind of like laughing about the experiences that all of us have had, but also providing really scientifically sound education there as well. And now we have millions of likes and views and shares. And it's been really exciting to kind of see everything from, you know, the most personal one-to-one -one, all the way to, you know, the millions and millions of views on TikTok and the importance of kind of that whole spectrum. Right. Just, just out of curiosity, uh, did you create kind of a community uh, kind of features within the platform or did you put in touch via social media, uh, the members of, of, of Evie? Yeah, great question. We actually debated this for a long time and we ended up putting it, um, the community is literally in a Facebook group and it is it. so active and amazing. And the women who are in there just doing God's work, educating each other, sharing stories. Um, and I think maybe one day it'll end up being in our platform itself, but um, turns out people really like Facebook groups. So it's working out. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Because I assume that now they are using uh, maybe the your. Do you have an app or kind of your own web platform? Uh, yeah. So people are usually also on the Evi app, right? It could be there, yeah. but they are also have installed the different um, social media apps, and uh, they can also connect there where where they are used to, right? So good, good exactly. point. Good point, and. Um, Something that uh, we, we also discussed in, in previous conversations uh, that we had opportunity to have is really uh, 
that's in, in terms of the health tech, the, um, there is of course the pressure, the pressure to show metrics, but we need to, to have in mind that this is different from, um, uh, and you, you, I'm using your expression, uh, kind of a productivity app uh, for, for SaaS, right? So, and of course the kind of triple, 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 or triple two times, double three times, kind of uh, growth, we need to be careful with that kind of approach to, to healthcare because if things are working out, uh, we are uh, not taking care very well, uh, very good care of, uh, of the patient. So what are some of your, uh, of your thoughts in, in terms of growth, in terms of the digital health or health tech um, environment? Yeah, great question. I mean, I have a lot of opinions on this topic. Um, I really think that investors can, some of them are, and all of them should be taking a very different approach to thinking about go-to-market in healthcare. Healthcare is truly one of, I mean, it's one of the largest contributors to the US GDP. It is a massive market. And I think it's really right. important to be patient. Sorry? Uh, kind of 20%, I think, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's a massive contributor. And I think that Understanding that the opportunities are massive if you get them right is really, really important because I think the the speed to getting to scale is definitely not necessarily the right path, depending on what you're doing in health tech, right? And I think making sure that you're doing things right and well is much more important than making sure that you're doing them fast. I, I mean, I don't, I didn't come up with this. I saw this somewhere else, but I always say it to my team, which is move fast, but don't break things. Like you cannot afford to break things when you're talking about healthcare. Um, and we talk a lot about type one versus type two decisions. What's reversible, you know, yeah. what doesn't really matter if you, you know, do it and then you change it the next day versus like what might impact a conversation someone's going to have with their doctor, what, you know, and making sure that for anything that has true impact that you're putting the time and effort into thinking about it, that it deserves and making sure you have the right experts involved. Um, and I think that maybe it means we're moving a little bit more slowly than we could be, but I think it means the opportunity is that much more massive, right? Because I think we've seen time and time again, healthcare companies shoot themselves in the foot by focusing on the wrong things. And I think while that's the fault, obviously, of the, the teams and the companies, it's also the fault of the investment market for treating health tech companies the same way that they treated other industries. And I think that it can and should be treated very differently. Very good points and um, something that I commented very uh, very quickly when when I looked into your uh, solution was the fact that you have a kit right so which usually scares a little bit uh, investors and I think that's your kit really adds a lot of value into the product into the conversation with the health coach in terms of your patient uh, experience now now that you have explained it to me very clearly how it works into the audience. So uh, I can see that it's a very important element and uh, will not um, affect the scalability of, of the company. Oh. But, I, but there are a lot of investors that are very scared when they see kind of a piece of hardware, let's call it, uh, in, in that way. Right? Totally. And I think that it's just so, it's important to us to be able to provide women with what they're actually looking for, right? And in our case, that happens to be information, answer, support, all of those things, and be really clear about what we can't do, right? Like Evie is not your healthcare provider, and we are really trying to help women better engage with their healthcare providers. So again, being really transparent about 
where things are, where things aren't. Um, and again, treating women like they're smart. I think it's just, there are way too many companies that try to oversimplify everything um, to, you know, make, make sure that the dumbest customer can understand. And I think that like the dumbest customer isn't that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very good points. Uh, and also ensuring that the, the patient is always uh, first. So we tend to simplify the model sometimes on the interest of the company, not on the interest of the, of the patient. So this kind of models, how can we make this more scalable, more profitable with better margins? Uh, and and uh, again, we are, we are forgetting our why, our mission, and uh, why are we doing what we are doing on a daily basis, which is to make uh, a better standard of care available to, to patients with specific conditions, right? I completely agree with everything you said. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that we, we now go into, into a topic that every single founder likes to, to talk about uh, and has a lot of experience to share, uh, bad and good. Uh, so uh, something that I really enjoyed on your journey that I'm seeing, it's also happened with Daslab, um, a company in Europe that I've interviewed from, from Germany which was the same approach that we did. So they bootstrapped it in the beginning uh, and then they raised the seed round um, after that, which is curious because now we are seeing the, the opposite trend, which is uh, a lot of companies uh, raising uh, pre-seed rounds, uh, large pre-seed rounds with, uh, with a deck. Uh, of course, this is not for all. It's, you need to have a, a, a very good deck, a very good team, uh, uh, track records behind to be able to raise in that, in that conditions. And now the market is changing a lot um, but what has been some of your lessons and sorry about the long uh, questions and comments <laughs> attached yeah definitely I mean I think that every fundraising and startup journey is an end of one to some degree so I feel like people can extrapolate as much as feels truly relevant to them um, and I think we were obviously fortunate enough that we had the personal capital to be able to bootstrap, which I totally understand is not true for everyone. And if you're going to leave your job, like there are financial implications to that. So by no means am I saying that not everyone should bootstrap. I think for us, it was the right decision because we, we had a very specific patient and medical and science centric way that we wanted to build the first version of our product. And we knew there were ways that we could do it faster, cheaper, whatever it was that wouldn't achieve all the goals that we wanted. And even though we could have raised a pre-seed round, we were very intentional about choosing to have no one else have a say except for our advisory board, our patients and ourselves. And we wanted no pressure about speed, about, you know, what they wanted it to look like. We wanted it to truly be by experts and people who cared about vaginas and then the people who were suffering with them and making it fully about that world. And I think it actually put a lot of pressure on us to, to move fast, to really focus on like, what is it that the patient actually needs? What is it that someone really wants for us? And how do I get the first version of that in their hands? Um, and I think it was really powerful and important for us. And we actually didn't take any official fundraising meetings until after we put that in market and we had real customers. And honestly, it just changes the conversation, right? Because now we can prove that like, this isn't your opinion of whether or not 
you know, somebody needs this. I mean, I can just show you that people, people need it. Right. And I can show you that, um, you know, when you really focused on the user that it really worked out well. And so it worked out really well for us to bootstrap. Um, but then we did raise a little bit of a larger seed, um, that enabled us to really kind of continue to iterate and grow from there. Um, but I think there's so many different approaches and ways you can do it. And I am very committed to helping other women fundraise. So if there are ever ways I can be helpful, I'm always happy to do so. This is great. Uh, thanks for, for doing that for the community. It also helps to, it's always the best way, right? To learn from peers and from founders uh, how to do it. Uh, totally. Especially also to check the, the quality of the investors that we are considering into our dream list. Uh, and I'm sure that- And I think that- especially women think you need to have so much more to fundraise than you actually do. Um, and I think that really being the expert on your problem and your customer, and if you can really show someone that you're way further along than, than you think you are. Yeah. And something, um, and sidetracking here a little bit, something that is also very important is to have a very strong founding team in these uh, earlier stages. So you already described it, um, what are the skills of your other uh, co-founder, but uh, what what has been the rationale behind? So who came up with the idea? Was was it you? Was it another co-founder? So how, how was the rationale behind building your founding team? Yeah. Um, so I... I had left my job really passionate and excited about the opportunities for better data in women's health. I was just shocked by everything I told you earlier about right. the lack of research, about our misunderstanding of the female body. And with so many new tools to measure biomarkers, I was like, we can do a way, way better job of this in women's health. And to be honest, I was also kind of terrified watching the growth of so many clinical decision support tools and data analytics tools all being built on healthcare data. But I was like, none of that data is applicable to half the population. Like we are just, it, it just scared me. And yeah. I was like, okay, I, I have to try to do something. Um, so I left my job and started doing a ton of research. I actually talked to 250 researchers, doctors, investors, wow. founders, and really tried to get a sense of like, where is the right place to start, which is like where I became obsessed with the vaginal microbiome. Um, and I, my actual co-founder is someone I've known for over 10 years, which is, is amazing because we, uh, we had collaborated in the past. We actually met when we were, um, undergraduate students at Stanford and she's actually, uh, she does everything that makes Evie cool. So everything, brand, design, marketing, all of our education platform um, she has built. Um, and then our early team kind of came together around all of the key areas, right? From the research side, I mentioned her to you. We have an amazing woman who leads all of our clinical operations and regulatory work. Um, we have product engineering, data science, health coaches. Um, and so our early team is kind of like one person. I mean, I say this like there's multiple of us, there's one person who does each thing right now. Um, and I would say that kind of the, the 10 or so of us are really the founding team of Evie, right? There's always, I feel like one or two people that get more credit than they deserve. I think everyone deserves the credit for, for where we are today. Got it. So, but officially it's two uh, co-founders, right? Uh, officially you, it's myself you, you, and Lane Bruzak who you, was um, the chief marketing officer. And then um, Pita Navarro joined us before we fundraised. Um, she's part of our founding team, as we always say, and she right. leads all clinical operations and research 
the three of us built the first version of the product we fundraised together. And then the, the other seven people have joined since then. Love it. So it's always a great question how to set up a founding team for digital health because there are so many issues that we want to cover in the founding team and so it's it's very easy to end up with five uh, yeah. members as a as a co-founding team right I have a lot of opinions on this too for anyone who is concerned I do think that I mean personally I was very insecure about not being a doctor or not being a PhD um, and was like, oh, I have to have someone who's that as my co-founder. But when you think about like, I mean, I'm so grateful that our team shook out the way it did because we put together an incredible, truly world-renowned advisory board who had to talk to us multiple times a week. And they helped us do so much of the upfront scientific research, the building out of the product, the experience, et cetera. But Amazing. that person didn't need to be my co-founder. And actually I could get access to better people who could help me come up with even better scientific and research solutions when they didn't have to be full-time co-founders. And really our day-to-day -day problems today are not necessarily scientific and research, right? We had a lot of upfront work to do, but day-to-day -day, it's how do we serve our customers? How do we find our customers? And those are things that my co-founder is actually really well suited to do. So I would say that, you know, make sure you bring the experts along and put them on your team, but they don't have to be your co-founder. Your co-founders. Very good advice. Uh, yeah, I see people dwelling a lot uh, about it, about it, and uh, also myself when I'm trying to to help um, and sharing advice. So great one. So we came to the last segment of the show where I ask uh, a question and uh, and our guests give a, a quick answer, a reflection, let's say. So if you would have the opportunity um, to have a coffee with uh, Priyanka at the beginning of your journey with Evi, what advice would you offer to your younger self? So many things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that one of the things that I wish I had realized is, I mean, there's so many. I think really it's one, it's cold emails work. Like truly most of our science advisory board, most of our investor meetings, like most of these things were us cold emailing people saying, we are two women who really care about this. This is what we're thinking about. Like, can you talk to us for 10 minutes? Um, and I, my co-founder always says like, make, make yourself easy to help. So how can you like write the email that you're asking them to send for you? How can you make it? Uh, one of our mentors says to us, like, if my daughter comes to me asking to make cookies, I'm going to have a very different answer. If she comes to me with pre-made cookie dough and it's like, how do you bring pre-made cookie dough to the people who you're asking for help? Because then it's most That's people want to be helpful. And I think that I was so scared to ask for help. I was, um, I don't know. I was just nervous that we, we didn't have anything to offer. Right. Like I was just, you know, we were women who wanted to start a company. And I think you forget how many people genuinely want to help. Um, and also if you can make it easy for them, they will. And I think that we learned that probably two to three months into like trying to get warm intros to everyone instead of just emailing them ourselves. And as soon as we started doing that, we were like, oh, this kind of works. So <laughs> <can't> recommend trying. <laughs> Love it. What are you the most proud of uh, during your journey with, with Heavy so far? 
I should have thought about these in advance. That's a very emotional question. I think honestly, <laughs> I'm most proud of the team. I think that like it, what we're doing is so hard on so many levels, everything, that, everything that's hard about building a consumer facing business, everything that's hard about building a health tech business. And then everything that's hard about building like a research institution, but then it's like all rolled up into like one company. And I think the amazing group of people that have come together across so many different backgrounds and disciplines, and just the, frankly, the fact that they like took a risk on us and have spent their career with us is something that I feel very grateful for and proud of every day. What is your app count at the moment? I'm sorry to sidetrack again. My what moment? App count. So uh, how many people do you have in, in the team? We're 10 people full-time and about 15 people, including our part-time friends. Got it. Worst advice ever received? You can't start a healthcare company if you're not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Great one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now we can we, we go into the resources favorite book. Um, my favorite book is a book called Invisible Woman. It's amazing if anyone hasn't read it. I mean, honestly, I learned so much from reading that book. It talks about how essentially the world that we live in is a world where all of the data that we've used to create the world is based on men and how women have kind of been invisible in this society and what the repercussions of that are from a data perspective. Um, and it's just an incredible, very well-written, compelling, amazing argument, frankly, for like why companies like Evie need to exist. Amazing. So I'm, I'm curious to, to read. Favorite movie or series? <laughs> oh, um, I actually, I don't know if this is my favorite, but I just yesterday saw the movie that everyone is raging, raving about called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Have you heard about this? Not yet. So I also need well, to go into that. It is a, it was one of the most overwhelming movies I've ever seen, both from a sensory perspective, emotionally, storyline. Um, but I'm still, I feel like I'm still processing it. So I'm going to say that for now. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Favorite podcast, excluding this one. Oh, I love the in-depth podcast that the first round review does. Okay. This is a good one. And usually they have very good uh, content. Uh, that's true. So I need yeah. to check. They started uh, a podcast and it's been amazing. Okay. So it's, it's, it's something new uh, still. I think, maybe. I think it's relatively new. Uh, maybe okay. I discovered it recently, but I used to read their blog for years and years and yes, years. And uh, I, then they launched a podcast and it makes it easy to do on, on your way to work. <laughs> amazing. And uh, Priyanka, I just want also to congratulate you for the amazing energy, as I said to you several times now in, in public. And uh, Thanks so much for making the time. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. I wish you all the best and you are always welcome to keep updating <laughs> us on the next chapters of, uh, of this amazing movie and this amazing purpose that you are bringing into yeah. humanity. No, you're so kind. Thank you so much for, for having me for the incredible platform that you're creating for so many founders and entrepreneurs around the world. It's hard for everyone. Everything's hard, as me and my co-founder always say. Um, but when you're doing something matter that matters, it's very much worth it. So um, I'm grateful for all the energy and effort you put into supporting so many of us. Um, and I hope to be back soon. Absolutely. You are always welcome. Thank you so much for your kind words as well. Thank you.
And to our community, thanks for being there. As you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best uh, to make your life a little bit easier uh, on your way to start and scale your uh, venture. See you soon and keep scaling.